This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. And this week on the show, we are in conversation with Professor Genevieve Bell. Genevieve Bell is one of the world's top technologists, and she's the head of the Australian National University's new Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute that is co-founded with the CSIRO's Data61. She is also the 2017 Boyer Lecturer, and she's here to talk about some of the themes in those lectures that looked at what it means to be human in a digital world. And now she did also make a funny expression when I said that this is a show where journalists talk journalism. But I think that many of the themes and the technologies that you mentioned in those lectures are incredibly relevant to the media and to the news industry. So we're really glad to have you here, Jenny. Thank you for joining us. Oh, listen, Olivia, I'm really happy to be here. I think I squiggled my nose because I'm like, oh, God, but I'm not a journalist. <laughs> Though, you know, I do think anthropology, which is my original training in journalism, have a lot in common, right? They're always about how do you find how do you find that story that unpacks the world so that the way you think it is is the way you sort of you're left going, Oh, that's not it at all. That kind of that moment where you can go, Uh oh, that's not what I was thinking. So I mean I've always thought there's a little bit in common, but not a journalist. <laughs> that's all right. We welcome many people onto the show. <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> so, Genevieve, your lectures trace the history of computing and the internet, and I think a really interesting part of that history is that Australia was actually at the cutting edge of a lot of those technologies. So why do you think we haven't stayed there? So listen, I think one of the really interesting things about the privilege of getting to do the Boyers was looking back at how we ended up in this moment. I think one of the great seductions of technology is that it always feels like it's brand new. And the reality is most of the ideas that are sitting inside it, and sometimes the technologies themselves have been a really long time in the making, you know, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70 years. And I'm really interested in how you give them back a bit of a history because I think it lets us ask better and different questions. And as I was sort of thinking through the how did we get to the digital moment of now, I realized you kind of had to go back to the beginning of computing, right? It's not about the beginning of the internet. It's actually about where did computers come from? And when you go back to that moment, and we're talking about the moment when computers stopped being women mathematicians and <laughs> became technology objects, that's really the kind of the early 40s during World War II. 
And I was really interested in looking at that, about how that machinery developed and about what was going on there. And fascinatingly, as I started to unpack those stories, Australia is right there at the very beginning, right? We had the fourth stored memory program computer in the world, actually started its life here in Sydney at the University of Sydney, ended its life at the University of Melbourne, was this kind of remarkable object that was built using a blueprint made by Australians that didn't look like the other computers of its day and actually lasted a lot longer as a result of that. And I was really sort of interested partly in it because I didn't know that story. And there's something for me interesting about the other thing about how we talk about technology, which is that we keep assuming it has this single origin point, and that origin point is never here. Like there's sort of that sort of bit that says, well, the Americans must have done it, and it was probably in Silicon Valley. And of course, the reality about computers was that it wasn't Silicon Valley. You know, it was Philadelphia, Bletchley Park, Sydney. You know, those were the places. And so there's sort of something for me about wanting to give a bit of texture back to that history. And the same is true when you actually look at the early days of the internet. Australia is one of the first countries outside of the US to get connected to the internet when they plugged in a node from Hawaii to the University of Melbourne. And that's in 89. And, you know, we have the second and third ISPs on the planet start in Australia, one out in Perth, one in Byron Bay. And we were really early online there. And there's sort of something in that history of Australia of being willing to trial new technologies and give it a go and see what happens. And we were similar in terms of our adoption of mobile phones and then of smartphones. So I think you have to kind of tease apart the difference between as consumers and citizens, we've continued to be early adopters of new technology. I mean, you know, we continue to lead the globe in terms of our willingness to download content. We have really quite high data rates for a nation of our size, which has actually been true back since 1989, when we basically blew through our the country's data plan in a surprisingly short period of time, <laughs> which I find oddly comforting. And, you know, we've been early adopters of all kinds of things. I think we're at an interesting moment at the moment where the debate is as much about how do we talk about our existing infrastructures, which is a very different thing than our usage patterns. And I think, you know, it's fascinating to me that we find ourselves in a parallel conversation at the moment about both the NBN as the most recent contemporary technology that will deliver the internet and all the other sort of things around it, as well as a debate about the electrical grid. And it's sort of something interesting to imagine. And in fact, frankly, we're still talking about water too. There's something interesting about the fact that conversations about infrastructure never seem to be done. And that, in fact, there are these moments of having to say, have we made the right choices? Are these the right infrastructures? And how then do we think about all the other pieces to it, which is who should be the providers, what's their incentive, how do we think about regulation, and then what are our rights and responsibilities as citizens and consumers and what we should get to demand. And for me, it's fascinating to think about, frankly, the parallels between what's going on with electricity and power as well as the NB. And I think it's they seem like they're different conversations. My suspicion is there's stuff lurking in them that actually threads them together again too. So I think another really interesting point on top of the infrastructure is the structures that regulate how we deal with all this new data. And I wonder, do you think that there needs to be a national or even an international body that regulates and monitors data and algorithms uh, and other sort of technologies that deal with our own personal data? Delightfully, one of the things that I got to do in thinking about the boys was actually tackle this question. So, you know, for your listeners, if you go to where you get your podcasts, and you can download the boy is there. You can go to the ABC Live Listen app or you can go to abc.net.au slash boyalectures. You can find that. And if you get to episode four, if you can stand getting through one to three, you can just jump straight to four. <laughs> That's exactly what I was tackling was how do we think about what regulation should look like in a world of data when it's not about devices but about data. One of the challenges with data is that it appears simultaneously to be nowhere 
and actually it's exquisitely somewhere. And I think, you know, one of the interesting challenges we have is thinking about how to regulate it. And we already see radically different regulatory frameworks emerging internationally. So the EU has a range of policies around data that look very different than some other places in the world. So I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with the notion of the right to be forgotten. So in the EU, the idea that you can approach a service provider and ask certain data of yours to be basically expunged from the public record. Uh, that's predicated on a move that we haven't seen globally, but a move in the EU where effectively as an individual citizen, you own the data that you produce. So you own anything attached to your mobile devices, your data subjectivity, your data history, and your IP address, which creates a very different environment for how you then think about privacy, regulation, trust, but also how an algorithmic world will operate on top of that. The EU and various member countries have also pushed for things like algorithmic transparency. So as a service provider or a sort of someone who provides algorithms, there's some requirement for you to unpack the component pieces. So if you think of an algorithm as really just being a set of instructions that tells computation what to do, there's been some requirement to start to think about what are the instructions and how do we think about those. So there's sort of you've got that going on in one set of markets. The US is very different. I mean, the US data is owned almost never by the person who constitutes that data set, but often by the service provider, the device manufacturer, the infrastructure provider which creates a really different environment. I'm not sure we're going to get to an international standard about these things, but I do think there are some very different threads globally that suggest we have real conversations to have here in Australia, and I think they turn on precisely these issues. You know, should Australian citizens own their own data? We can have some markets in the world where they do, some where they don't, but I think it's an obvious question to be asking. Should we regulate algorithms that come in from overseas that are at play here, that are making certain kinds of determinations about everything from recommendations or to service delivery or other kinds of things. Um, and we have precedent for regulating things that come in from overseas, particularly I can think of in the drug and medical regime world. You know, we have standards we set for those things. I think there are probably some open questions about what it would look like to ask for accountability in this space. So what would it be to sort of start to say, as we move into a world where certain kinds of decisions get automated, how do we regulate those things? And those are all big kind of open questions that we haven't yet really started to debate. We've had pieces around the edges and we've clearly had a couple of examples in the last year or so where there's room to think about what is an algorithm going to look like in this country and how do we want to think about how it gets built, tested, scrutinised and then regulated. And do you think that the government is currently equipped to deal with all of that? Listen, I think one of the real challenges if you're a policymaker or a politician is that this technology is moving quite quickly and it's often the case that getting a handle on it requires both a bit of work and a different set of expertise. I made a suggestion in the boys, which I'm sure will get me in trouble later, that you know one of the things we expect of board directors is they have to be certified financially. I wonder if we shouldn't be asking the same things about our regulators that they should actually be certified technically before they start to sort of go into these spaces. I think the challenge there is what would that certification look like? But, you know, we know that there are people who understand this sort of technical world and we should be seeking that advice more in some ways than I think we are. Now, of course, the challenge here is that it's easy to go for a soundbite. It's easy to go for a, you know, I don't know, I always keep thinking about the sort of the, the robot apocalypse story seems to get a lot of traction. And it partly gets traction because it's, it's easy on both sides of the fence, right? It's an easy story to tell because it's got such good imagery that goes with it that taps into 200 years since Frankenstein. And we all kind of go, yeah, you know, it's the Terminator, it's the monsters, ah, nothing good's going to come of it. It's an easy story to tell. It's always got great visuals. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, there's sort of a bit of 
on the side of those of us who tell stories, we need to be willing to tell a slightly more complicated story. But I think there's also a piece on the part of us equally as citizens that we ought to be demanding harder stories too, right? And I think that that's actually a little bit of work. It's sometimes sort of the easy story is an easy one to fall for, but I think there's a bit that says as citizens we ought to be better educated too, right? We ought to ask harder questions of our storytellers about those pieces of technology. And I know none of that's easy work, but I think it's necessary. You're listening to Fourth Estate. Let's talk about the media because one area where the government is actively considering some sort of regulation in the way that the technology has impacted our life is in the way that it's impacted the media. You know, the internet has famously destroyed the business model of news media and now companies like Facebook and Google are really just hammering the nails uh, in the coffin there. But do you think that there's anything that the government actually could do to help Australian media organisations with what's happening, with where their traffic goes? with Facebook and Google? Well, I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in the US really over the last sort of two to three years has, again, been the stuff that's sitting underneath that story that we don't spend as much time talking about. So if you look at the traffic on and the subscriptions for a couple of America's biggest newspapers, in particular the Journal, the Washington Post and the New York Times, subscriptions are up on all of those beyond behind the paywall. So in fact... They've found a new audience, and what's interesting about the demographics of that audience is it's a lot of millennials. So there's something interesting that says we've called the death of newspapers, and maybe we called it a little little soon. It's certainly a different notion of what constitutes the news than it has been, and it's a broader circle. But I think it's, again, been one of those kind of convenient stories, and I suspect there's more going on in there. Similarly, when you look at the rise of both long-form journalism in unexpected places. So Lauren Ducker at Teen Vogue has been running a really interesting line for nearly six months now, eight months now. And I think she's sort of created an unexpected audience for that publication about politics. Who knew that was where that was going to come from? You know, Vanity Fair has been running a pretty spectacular line around sexual harassment. So there have been interesting places that are reasserting a kind of interest in telling stories. So there's that piece. I think the harder bit is about how do you think through the value of local narrative? And I think that's an interesting one, right? Australia's had a long history of expecting the production of a certain amount of local content. It's how we used to do our broadcast licenses, at least as I understand it, right? There was an expectation that a certain amount of content had to reflect local narratives. I think there's an interesting case to be made about whether we should also be demanding that of an algorithmic world, like how much of those algorithms should be sourced locally and manifesting local cultural traditions. And there are all kinds of ways you could think about what that looked like. Um, You know, everything from does Google Maps welcome you to country every time you traverse across a new indigenous landform, I think it probably should. That would be an interesting thing to imagine, but there's ways of sort of thinking through that stuff. It's also, again, the case that globally there have been governmental regimes who've started to ask questions about Facebook and Google and, you know, to a lesser extent, other of the big American tech companies. And I think we're at a moment in time where if you listen to Zuckerberg in particular, but also, you know, Larry and Sergey at, at Google, you can hear them thinking through what those technologies now mean, right? I mean, they've hit a scale that was unimaginable 10 years ago. I think even for them, <laughs> in their wildest dreams, I don't think they imagined, you know, quite the scale they'd get to. And I think, you know, particularly listening to Mark over the last, Mark Zuckerberg over the last kind of year or so, his rethinking of what his technology is doing has been interesting to watch. And I think they're all in a moment in time where there is critical reflection that has to happen. And it's not surprising, right? I mean, again, 
in some ways, those technologies have wormed their ways into our lives so effectively you forget that there was a time when we didn't have them. But that time's not that long ago. I mean, it's less than 10 years, really, at scale. And I think one of the things we know about both the regulatory world and actually us as human beings is it takes a while for stuff to settle. And, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and television was already 20 years old when I was a kid in, you know, suburban Melbourne. And my parents and my grandparents were still arguing about when it should be on, how much you should watch, whether you're allowed to watch shows from other countries, (laughs) should the television be turned off, how much television was bad. And I think about those conversations and we're still having them. I mean, you know, in 2017, which feels like a very long time since 1956. And my suspicion is similarly in this space, we're nowhere near the point where we would be ready to say this is what it's going to be. I mean, the technology is still evolving. I don't think it's stabilised. I don't think our sensibilities about it have stabilised. Now, does that mean we shouldn't be regulating it? No, it doesn't. It just means that we need to pay attention to the fact that this stuff is still newer than it feels. It's interesting because uh, it's probably one of the first times I've heard someone describe that uptick in uh, subscriptions to like the New York Times and the Washington Post as not just being attributable to Trump. And I think you, you made a really good point. It, it probably isn't just that. Now, you also talked about watching Zuckerberg stop and reflect on the impact of that technology. And something we've talked a lot about on the show is fake news and the mm-hmm. drastic impact that that's having, not only on the news industry, but on the world and politics and people. And and it seems to me that fake news is a really interesting intersection of technology and the fallibility of humans, like our willingness to believe stuff that we want to believe and our desire to surround ourselves with people that are just like us. And I don't know, I wonder, do you think that, is there any technological solution to fake news? Well, insofar as for as long as there has been technologies that allowed the word to be stabilised, there's always been stories that weren't true, right? I mean, you know, I think it's easy to think that fake news is a creation of the last sort of even two years. But the reality is, you know, from the time of the printing press and arguably town criers before that, there was always an incentive to tell stories that weren't entirely Sure, but there wasn't the ability to broadcast them across the world within minutes. No, but they were broadcast across a scale of people for whom they would have had as equal impact. So I think there is scale here, but there's also very different notions about what that scale historically looked like and the impact those stories also had at at earlier points. And I don't want to suggest that the moment we're in now has historical analogues, but I do want to kind of remember that the idea of Printing things that weren't true <laughs> wasn't created by the internet. That's, you know, got a long and delightful legacy. And part of the reason that we know how to make it work is that the notion of the lie has a deep historical context. So we can, you know, think about how to cleave those things. Are there ways of technically making things more or less true? Sure, of course there are. You know, everything that we know about how you make other objects real or not real. I mean, think about how we historically watermarked paper currency in order to make some currency real and some currency not, because there was certainly a long circulation of fake currency 100 years ago. We know how to think about it in that sense. We certainly know how to think about copies and originals in other spaces. Um, I'm not sure those get us to the right place, I mean, because you get awfully close then to starting to say, well, who are you going to certify as the real news? Who gets to do that work and what would the consequences be of that? Uh, you know, who gets to determine what the real news is and what the fake news is? Gets awfully close to other forms of complicated notions about content and content ownership. I think it's equally interesting to ask, what would it mean to think about how we teach critical thinking and critical literacy? 
So, you know, we've talked a lot about whether people needed to have digital literacy. There was that kind of that conversation that went on, I think, over the last 10 or 15 years about, well, you know, we teach literacy and numeracy. Do we need to teach kids to code in schools? You know, is that the solution? I wonder instead if there isn't also a piece that says, how do we go back to teaching um, some ideas that are not about the internet or not, but about what constitutes civic and civil discourse? what constitutes ideas about how do you pursue an argument? How do you think about the logical constitution of an argument? How do you say if A, then B, then C, but if A, then like it can't be this other thing over here? Those are ways of teaching and creating the space for people to become their own critical voices, which I think is actually really important. But there are things you could do technically. I mean, we're already starting to see that, whether it's, you know, some of the ways Twitter is starting to scrutinise the bots or not. Um, perversely, it's how I knew that the Boyers hashtag was trending over the weekend when we recorded the Boyers, was that I suddenly got a whole lot of bots retweeting the Boyers stuff, and I went, oh, the bots are here. <laughs> I was like, oh, we've done something interesting. But, you know, Twitter's working on how do you think about who is certified and who isn't and how certain kind of news circulates. Facebook is clearly working through the same issues, so is YouTube. There's clearly an orientation to it. I don't know that there's an easy answer, though. You said in the lecture that many people wondered why on earth you would move back to Canberra from Silicon Valley, which is the centre of innovation and where technologies that really shape our future are made. And I think that's a really interesting point. The innovation that shapes our world seems increasingly to be in the hands of a few companies, and those companies are mostly made up of like white American dudes. So is there any hope of changing the course of that ship, or is it one that has already sailed? No, I always think there's hope in changing things. And yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley has had a long history of a very particular kind of innovative cycle, right? But, you know, the reality is all of the companies that we imagine at the center of all of that are also companies that are all grappling with how they remake themselves into something different. I mean, you know, the head of diversity at Google is a wonderful woman named Danielle Brown. She knows she's got a big task there. (laughs) The same for Barbara McAllister at my old company, Intel. Oh, I think there's a deep commitment to thinking about how to create a different kind of workforce, but also an awareness that that takes time, it takes effort, and it's not just about saying we need women. It's about saying we need to bring in different kinds of lived experiences. We need to bring in different people who've got different backgrounds in terms of race, class, ethnicity, lived experience. Oh, and by the way, you can't just bring them in. You actually have to create a climate in which different kinds of conversations flourish and different kinds of expertise are celebrated and listened to. And it's also meant thinking about how do you have different kinds of, well, disciplines inside companies. I mean, when I turned up at Intel as an anthropologist, there was a bit of the, you're not an engineer. Like, that is correct. I am not an engineer. Like, we don't know how to talk to you at all. You seem very odd. (laughs) Like, that may just be me. That may not be the anthropology bit. (laughs) So there's sort of this bit where it requires a lot of change. I also think, you know, we have to be really clear, even if we talk about the current moment that we're in, you know, you talk about, you know, the big companies that are driving, for instance, machine learning and, and AI, Right. Baidu and Tencent in China really matter. They are big companies who are doing very different things that do not look like what's going on in Silicon Valley. Yeah, we never talk about them. That's never really in our media here. There's not a conversation that includes and yet, that. And yet Baidu is one of the leading centres of thinking about machine learning and AI, and they're doing it really differently. And, you know, WhatsApp was created in Israel. And frankly, you know, the Indian government has just come to the end of a cycle of what is probably the largest biometric identification project the planet has ever seen. They went from zero to 900 million unique biometric identification objects 
for the country and created a way to think about how to bring people into the formal economic sector. I think they put on something like 250 million bank accounts in an 18-month period by giving people a way of identifying themselves who hadn't had it before. So there are all these other stories about what's going on. And one of the other problems is we keep going back to the, it's all from Silicon Valley. And of course, the reality is it isn't all from Silicon Valley. I mean, in fact, a great deal of it is not from Silicon Valley. I mean, the original bits of Silicon Valley actually came from Bell Labs on the, <laughs> the east, you know, New Jersey and upstate New York. And, you know, a bunch of things came out of England, a bunch of things have come out of Europe. So I think this is weird kind of tendency to want to make it all about Silicon Valley. But there are other centers of gravity and centers of expertise that you're right, we don't talk about what we probably should, because in fact, what's going on there is going to matter tremendously. So related to that, you also spoke in your lectures about the need to assert our Australianness as we move into a more data-driven world. But it kind of made me think, why? Why do we need to be Australian? We live in such a globalised world. We move around the world so easily. Mm-hmm. Our information moves even more easy than that. So what is the point? Why do we need to stay Australian? Because I think there are distinct Australian values, at least in my mind, that are worthy of ensuring get into the algorithmic world too. So, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a child of a particular moment in Australia and I was raised to think that issues around social justice equity, fairness, equality and civic society mattered and that they mattered not as individuals in relationship to the nation state but as groups of individuals and you know I you know I grew up firmly believing those things. Not all the algorithms that are being written encode those values and there are ways to say do we in fact much like I think the debates we were just having about media should there be Australian media Should we have local journals telling local stories? If you think the answer to that is yes, then we should also be thinking about having a data subjectivity that reflects those things too. Otherwise, what you end up having happen is, what are we now, 23 million people? Oh, I don't know. Let's pick something unpleasant. We really like our footy here. Pick a code, AFL, rugby. You may think that the AFL is the centre of the known universe. And if you grew up in Melbourne in my childhood, it certainly was the centre of the known <laughs> universe. Woo-hoo. There's 20 million people, you know, what well, we're probably in Australia who follow football, yeah, maybe 10 million, probably less. If all sports media were sourced by statistics and by an algorithm that tracked global activity, you would never get to know anything about the footy because it would be irrelevant. It's a tiny number out of a... 4 billion to 5 billion set of activities. So unless what you then wanted to say was, actually, you know, who cares about the AFL? I mean, you know, go Tigers, but who cares? (laughs) Um, You know, no one really cares. It's not really a big global sport. No one follows it. It will never turn up ever again because we are now going to use all of our algorithmic data to produce sports news that everyone cares about. And this is not anything anyone really cares about. I can't imagine that's a reality that we'd be really happy with. So, you know, and sport is an easy example to pick, but there are lots of other things that we care about here too, whether it's about, again, silly things, the weather. You know, we actually like to get local weather because it turns out it matters. We like to know about local news. We should be following our local politicians because they're the ones in our local parliaments making decisions. Those decisions and parliamentary practice don't look like they look on a global scale. Should we care about environmental issues that are local to us that have local touch points? Yeah. Do all of those things constitute Australian stories? Yeah. Sitting underneath of them are also bits of data and notions about how bits of data get stitched together that are also profoundly local and Australian. So sure, as Australians, we are global citizens. We certainly travel more than many. There are a million Australians living abroad as expats. 
and we like to circulate our ideas and ourselves, and we shouldn't stop doing any of that. But I do think there's a claim to say we should also think about what are the things that are local that matter and that we care about and that we have lovingly and sometimes stubbornly preserved over, you know, 65,000 years. And we should make a case about why some of those matter and ought to drive our future. All right, if I can ask you one last question about the way that you delivered the Boyer Lecture this year, because it's quite unlike any that have come before. It's almost a multimedia experience. You've got other voices in there, there are sound effects, and there's this underlying soundtrack that kind of makes you feel like you're on a spaceship hurtling towards another universe. So can you tell me a bit about the decision to do it that way? (laughs) It was an interesting moment for me. Um, When the ABC approached me, to ask me to do the 2017 boys. I just didn't think they meant me. Um, I actually thought it was spam, which is embarrassing. And I looked at it and I kind of went, I can't do this. And like, you know, I've spent 20 years in a tech company. I haven't been an academic since the late 1990s. I don't do speeches like that. And I, you know, I grew up with the boys. I mean, I think many of us did, right? I grew up with the boys as being someone reading on radio. And it's a glorious thing, right? Someone who does that well, who's got something to say, it's an amazing thing. But I just knew it couldn't be me. And so when I met with the leadership team at the ABC, I went, um, so listen, here's the thing. Really love the boys. Think they're great. Grew up with them. Think it's an amazing thing to trigger a national conversation like that. I mean, I really do. It's an extraordinary part of Australia's heritage. I said, but I don't think I can do it. And they went, what do you mean? I was like, uh, <laughs> can we do something a bit different? And they all just looked at me and went, what did you have in mind? I'm like, everything. <laughs> like, I want multimedia and pictures and sound. And I want to tell different kinds of stories. And I don't think it should just be me. And, 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 and. And they all just kind of looked at me and went, uh-huh. <laughs> so you say. And then I was incredibly lucky because they assigned this wonderful producer inside the ABC, a guy named Scott Spark, to come work with me. They actually put a sound engineer on the project, Russell Stapleton, who's extraordinary. And they were incredibly indulgent both those two guys and the ABC of me going, ah, different. And so as we worked it through, I mean, I wrote it, I wrote it as a sequence to have a soundscape. So I wrote it with an eye, an eye and an ear that it should have noises to it. And then there should be a sound to it that I did shouldn't just be my incredible droning on. And I really wanted some ways of taking a couple of the stories, which I think are just wonderful. I mean, the stories about electricity, robots, and the typewriter. And I wanted to kind of find a way to make those come to life on the page too. And so Again, Scott and the ABC were wonderful about commissioning three completely fabulous graphic illustrators to work on those. And so there were, you can again find those on the websites, there are these amazing graphic illustrations to go with a couple of the stories, which for me were just this wonderful way of expanding the reach. So yeah, I mean, it, it's not your traditional boyer, but I hope that what it did was kind of preserve the best of the boyer spirit, so spark a national conversation, but with an ability to bring some people along on that journey who might not otherwise have found their way there. I think it's a real joy to listen to. Thank you. So, Genevieve Bell, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. My pleasure. That's it for us this week on Fourth Estate. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is at Fourth Estate AU. And if you do like the show, why don't you leave us a review on whichever podcast player you use? I'm Olivia Rosenman. Catch you next week.